So I, I think we should start the show this week addressing the fact that you as a 40-year-old distinguished <laughs> gentleman mm-hmm, mm-hmm. decided to take up skateboarding. It's Okay, no, no, stop it. That is not what happened, okay? Me, as a 40-year-old distinguished gentleman, owns a longboard I have for a few years. I am marginally competent on a longboard. What I've been doing this year is watching my daughter learn to longboard. And so I've been tooling around on the driveway and out onto the road in front of our house. One of the neighborhood kids got a longboard. I said, oh, cool. Like, let me let me check it out. Figuring, like, I'll be the cool dad who shows the kids how to ride a longboard. And this longboard was defective. Uh the way (laughs) truly okay the way a longboard works is that you you lean um side to side to steer like it it turns the wheels as you lean and a good longboard is designed such that the deck won't touch the wheels because if it does the longboard stops and that's bad so i got on this thing and i'm going and i turned into my driveway and the deck hit the wheels and the board stopped and I ran off the front because when a board stops, you really have no other option. You're going to continue moving forward. So I did. And I was like, oof, that's not great. So I reset the board and was bringing it back. And as I was bringing it out for them, I curved a little bit again. And the board got hung up on the wheels and stopped. And I took my right foot and started to walk off the board. And as I did so, the deck re-leveled and the board started moving again. And so... My left foot that was still on the board continued to move forward. My right foot was now on the ground, and I Ooh. I heard a very loud pop. <laughs> I watched my foot turn in a direction that a foot is not supposed to turn. Ew. And I went down real hard. <laughs> and before, almost before I'd hit the ground, I said to my daughter, go get mom. I just broke my ankle. Oh, instant. And so I was in quite a bit of pain. And just like, like hands, you know how when you watch American football and you see someone take a really bad hit and they're just on their knees and their elbows and they're, they've got their forehead on the ground and they're just pounding the <laughs> ground in agony. Like you just know that something went terribly wrong. That was me. In British football as well, when they, it's like they're down on the ground and you at that moment are deciding whether it was like a, oh no, I fell over. Yeah. Or like an actual, like <laughs> I've, you know, torn my ACL, this is career ending. Yes. Yeah, I, I, I can absolutely see that. So that was me. And uh, <laughs> so I, I like hands and knees crawled over to the driveway and laid down on my back on the driveway somebody brought me a chair from the house probably my wife i don't know uh and i put my leg up on it and like my foot was just sitting at an angle oh, at rest no. i was like i was like that's that's not right uh it is not an attractive looking fracture so yesterday i went into the orthopedic surgery center and they said yeah we're gonna we're going to put a plate in that and we'll do that this week. So tomorrow I have surgery. And if I die on the table, this will be this will be the last podcast I'm ever on. So like buy your merch now because it's about to go up in price. Um, <laughs> Don't say that. Rude. I mean, the, the in memoriam merch might sell for a bit more. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We'll have quotes like, I'm just going to drop that in right here. On we'll the just drop that in right here. Yeah. Before we start, can I just ask, are you ever going to longboard ever again? Um, that is a good question. 
Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> and how long? How long can you not walk on this after surgery? Is it like eight to ten weeks? We're talking like oh, eight to ten. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yep. You're going to see in 2022 like this. Right. I'm seeing that as a positive. More video games. Just, just saying. <laughs> and also, like, I'm glad you don't need a leg to record a podcast because, you know, you're here. Yeah, very true. Very true. I realize I've just taken up half of the show talking about my broken leg. <laughs> it's fine. It's okay. I think that might get edited. Probably. But we should probably drop into some Watchtower Weekly. Let's go for it. So this first one is how a squid game crypto scam got away with millions. And I think the first thing to say is that the Squid Game was based on, but not affiliated with, the Netflix series of the same name. The coin harnessed the zeitgeist for the Netflix series Squid Game by apparently offering obsessed gamers access to a play-to-earn game, says Catherine Wooler, managing director at UK crypto wealth platform Daxi. The project white paper published on its now defunct website promised big things for investors, but sounded awfully like a Ponzi scheme. Uh, so Luke Hartford read a tip from a user by the name of John H. Ree 112 that alerted him to the latest cryptocurrency on the rise. Its price had increased 1,000%. Why, why is it always with cryptocurrencies? They die. Oh, they've gone up like 60, 70%, 1,000%. I'm just angry about it all. <laughs> <laughs> and was looking like uh, it had headroom for 200% more. At the time, the price of the coin was 72 cents. Better buy before $1, wrote this guy. Yeah, Hartford was an experienced crypto trader. Is that a job now? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He had seen the meteoric rise of uh, Shiba Inu, uh, an apparent joke meme coin that had enjoyed a 900% rise in under a month, muscling its way into the top 10 cryptocurrencies in the world in the process. And he saw the Squid Game coin capturing the zeitgeist in a similar way. He wanted to get in on the ground floor, so on October 28th he bought in. Harford wasn't a rookie at all, so he looked at BSC Scan, which registers all transactions on the Binance platform, before investing. There were some comments from people who warned the Squid Game coin could be a scam. Coming from nowhere, it seemed too good to be true, and it was likely to infringe on trademarks, so it could really end up coming to nothing. But Hartford ignored them, wanted to get in as soon as possible, he says. He bought $300 worth of Squid Game coin. Each coin was worth around 90 cents. He sat back, watched. First it crossed $1.00 earning a 10% return, then $2, then $3. He said, I watched it keep going up that night, getting pretty excited. Uh, That way I doubled or tripled my money in a few hours. Uh, When Hartford woke up the next morning, the Squid Game coin had hit $5. His $300 had ballooned into more than $1,600. But something weird was happening. On the morning of October 29th, he searched the dollar squid hashtag on Twitter. He saw people tweeting that they couldn't sell their holdings. So others corrected those uh, struggling to cash out, explaining that they needed to buy marbles, which were obtained through a pay-to-play game organized by the project's owners in order to sell. I mean, this seems just about as good as an idea of of (laughs) joining something like Squid Game. (laughs) Hartford paused for a moment. I wasn't sure at this stage if I'd been scammed or not. I mean, I would have been fairly certain. (laughs) Hartford decided to buy $50 in marbles, in for a penny, in for a pound, as an experiment to see if that was a way to get his money out. Hartford's initial $300 investment was worth 200000 as the coin Squid Game rose to £600 per token. It had eventually rise to a peak of $2,861 
that's per coin, in which would make Hartford just short of $1 million in theory. In reality, the whole thing was a scam, and Hartford was just one of its many victims. So just after 1.38 on November 1st, 3.36 million that had been invested in Squid Game Coin was yanked out of the project by its creators. The liquidity pool in the exchange disappeared in an instant, and within 10 minutes, the coin was almost worthless, trading in at one-third of a cent. Uh, Hartford then realised it was too good to be true after he started reading more and more tweets about it and the fact that the chart had never once moved downwards and instead was constantly going up. Yet, he's not angry about the $300 he lost. He said, to me, crypto is about a free market without regulation. He says, I don't think people who want deregulation can complain when things like this happen. You live by the sword, you die by the sword. That's crypto. (laughs) I love that quote. I I (laughs) felt slightly sorry for him and then not sorry for him at all. You know what? I I will say this. It's the outlook that this person has strikes me as one that someone who has sort of a healthy outlook on playing casino games does, right? Like, I have $200. I'm going to walk into this casino and I'm going to spend that $200 at the end of the day. I don't intend to walk out with it, but if I do, all right, fun. That seems like this person's outlook on crypto, which I think is is the right one. Yeah, I think this goes back to what our guest from last week, George from Scamify, so what he was saying about if it looks too good to be true, then it probably is. And in this case, it definitely looked too good to be true. Mm -hmm. So this next one, Facebook is shutting down its facial recognition system, affecting over a billion people. So Facebook will shut down its facial recognition system. More than one third of the app's daily active users have opted into its facial recognition setting. There are many concerns about the place of facial recognition technology in society and regulators are still in the process of providing a clear set of rules for governing its use. That was uh, from a artificial intelligence VP at the new parent company of Facebook, Meta. So admit this ongoing certainty, we believe that limiting the use of facial recognition to to a narrow set of use cases is appropriate. It's an odd move for Facebook. I mean, maybe because it doesn't give them data that they can literally just, you know, there sell. This feels in stark contrast to the announcement of Meta, right? It really does. I can kind of see what they're doing here, right? Like they named it Meta as the as the parent company to kind of like wash away the sins of Facebook. And then they're doing <laughs> something here that's like, right, we're removing this feature and we're going to make a big deal about it and like look at all the things. They talk about Meta a lot in this article they talk about the reasons why and the unregulatory concerns and unrestraint of of the current facial recognition situation and so like they've come out with a stand on it yeah the move marks a major shift away from controversial technology that facebook has incorporated into its products giving the users the option to receive automatic notifications when they appear in photos and videos posted by others In the absence of federal regulations, cities and states have begun banning facial recognition systems used by police and government. And in 2019, San Francisco was the first city to ban government use of the technology. Others, including Jackson, Mississippi, Portland, Oregon, have all followed. Worth stating that the UK are still avidly using it. Facebook has also considered building facial recognition in products such as its smart glasses. Facial recognition, for example, could be used to identify the name of people you can't remember. But the company's employees raised concerns that the technology could be abused by stalkers. Why why did it take employees (laughs) to state that? (laughs) Oh, goodness. Uh, Privacy and Civil Rights Group have applauded Facebook's move. Ah, you see, they're using the the term Facebook there and not Meta. Mm. This is all getting very um, 
Meta. Meta. Um, <laughs> this is a good start towards ending dangerous uses of facial recognition technology. That now it's time for enforceable rules that prohibit companies from scanning our faces without our consent. Uh, looking at you, Congress, uh, the American Civil Liberties Union said. What's your thought on this? I, I feel like they're doing it a little bit for show, but also, I mean, it's a good show. Yeah, that's kind of where I come down on it. I don't see a single downside of this. Yeah. This seems to be the right thing to have done. It does feel a bit off brand, but okay, like maybe this is the new direction for Facebook under Meta. So this next one, Luton man left shocked as his house is stolen. This is the BBC reporting. A man has described his shock at returning to his house and finding it stripped of all furnishings after it was sold without his knowledge. Having been alerted by neighbours, the Reverend Mike Hall drove to Luton and found building work underway and a new owner who said he'd just bought the house. A BBC investigation found Mr Hall's identity had been stolen and used to sell the house and bank the proceeds. How someone can walk away with this is just mind-blowing. So Mr. Hall, who was away from the property and working in North Wales, said he received a call from his neighbour on 20th of August saying that someone was in the house and all the lights were on. Uh, the following morning, he drove there. He said, I went to the front door, tried my key in the front door. It didn't work. And a man opened the front door to me. I pushed him to one side, got in the property... I really didn't know what he was doing there. The shock of seeing all the house completely stripped of furniture, all furnishings, carpet, curtains, everything. It was all out of the property. Mr. Hall then phoned the police, but the builder left and returned with the new owner's father, who said he had bought the property in July, adding, it is now my property, you are trespassing, get out. Wow. Mr. Hall said, uh, we then tried to access the land registry documentation online to find out whose name appeared. And it is, in fact, as of 4th of August, this man's name. At the point, the police said, well, there's nothing further you can do here. This is a civil matter. You need to leave the house and contact your solicitors. Wow. Uh, he said, I was shocked having seen the house in the state it was. I was in a bit of a shock anyway, but then told by the police that they didn't believe a criminal offence had been committed. It was just unbelievable. A driving licence was used to impersonate Mr. Hall and had been obtained along with the details of his bank account set up in his name to receive the proceeds of the sale and phone recordings of the house being stolen. This is fascinating. Yeah. The the BBC put Mr. Hall in touch with Bedfordshire's police fraud squad, who has begun an investigation. And uh, I don't know whether you know anything about buying a house in England, but it takes forever. It's a while. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, this was a long con of all the cons. Yeah. Mm. Apparently, the land registry paid out a total of 3.5 million in compensation for fraud last year. So this apparently happens quite a lot. Whoa. That's terrifying. I'm trying to think if someone could just like sell, pretend to be me and sell my house out from underneath me. Well, there was the the famous con of selling several bridges. I think it was back in the you know 1900s. It was the Eiffel Tower as well, I believe. I think he managed to con someone into buying the Eiffel Tower, believing he was buying it from the French government. But like. <laughs> Yeah. How would you react if this happened to you? Oh, it would be terrifying, wouldn't it, to come home and find someone else in your in your house and the the police come and, you know, tell you to leave. Mm. I think I'd probably just spontaneously combust if I found out I no longer owned my house. They'd have to clean up my remains on the doorstep. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the other thing. Like when you buy a house, there are so many questions that you have to answer and and like, you know, certificates that you have to provide. They must have forged 
all of it. It's pretty impressive. It kind of is. It's kind of terrifying as well. Yeah. All right. Uh, this next one. The US offers 10 million bounty for the colonial pipeline hackers. This is again from the BBC. So the United States government has offered a bounty of up to $10 million for information about the hacking group known as the Dark Side. I added a the in there. That just felt natural. They are <laughs> called Dark Side. I'm thinking like a four out of five for their name. It's my favorite thing that you do. <laughs> that you just you don't make a deal of it you just write it quietly and then move on i love it i feel like some weeks are out of 10 as well and other weeks are out of five it's um a good system oh yeah i'm not consistent in anything in life so there we go <laughs> in may a dark side ransomware attack shut down a vital 5500 mile long fuel pipeline that's a lot i've just completely lost my trail of thought because that's such a long way the, the pipeline carries 45% of the fuel used on the East Coast. That's a lot, too. The cyber attack caused fuel shortages after the Colonial Pipeline shut down its operations for several days. It eventually paid the 4.4 million ransom in Bitcoin. The bounty is offered for information which can lead to the identification or location of any individuals in a leadership position with Darkseid. The separate $5 million reward has been offered for information leading to the arrest of anybody conspiring to participate in a Darkseid ransomware attack. That's a lot of money. I feel like, you know, if you were in Darkseid, the ransomware group, not the boy band, which I'm assuming also exists, $10 million to, to turn your friends in. I mean, yeah. I love you both, but $10 million is $10 million. <laughs> if we if we were in this racket, I'd uh, I'd sell you down the river. Thanks for that, man. <laughs> Very welcome. T- $10 million is also the largest bounty ever offered for the arrest of a specific cyber criminal. It's nice to see the, the US government taking this quite seriously with a $10 million bounty. Indeed, yeah. The thing that with all these individuals have in common is that they are thought to be living carefree lives in Russia, safe of any prospect of arrest from local police who routinely ignore Western accusations against Russian hackers. Even with their names, pictures and a rough location published by the US, these criminals are safe. I mean, even if you are in Russia, $10 million is $10 million. Someone, someone's going to sell you out, right? That's, that's, that's a lot of money. Yeah. I'd put a bit more security around myself. Actually, thinking about it, I don't think I'd hire anybody because I can't pay them more than $10 million. I'll uh, give you a fiver. Yeah, exactly. You can't pay these people enough to protect you against the bounty that's out there. I mean, I guess I've just stumbled across exactly the reason why bounties exist. This week, I'm joined by Phil, who is the design director for B2B here at OnePassword. He is here today to talk about our new password secure sharing tool and how it can transform your digital life. Welcome to the show, Phil. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Glad to be on the show. So what was password sharing like before the password secure sharing tool, or PST, as we call it? And <laughs> what were some of the problems, you know, we were trying to solve in people's work and home lives? Well, Matt, it doesn't take long for a new 1Password customer to want to share some of the important information they keep in 1Password with other people. If you think about the kinds of things that people store in 1Password, it makes sense. It's Wi-Fi passwords, account credentials, garage door codes, countless situations where it's necessary to share these things. And so while many of our customers sign up for family and teams accounts where they can have shared vaults with other people 
who are important to them. And there's always cases where you want to share things outside of 1Password. And of course, since the early days of computing, what's been the go-to answer for taking a piece of text from one place and putting it somewhere else? It's copy-paste. So people have been copy-pasting or insecurely messaging these items to each other, and I don't blame them. It's frictionless, it's not restrictive, and you can copy-paste anything anywhere. But the problem with that is that it's not secure. And depending where you're pasting these things, you're exposing your data to a lot of risk, and probably a lot more than most people can guess. Yeah, copy and paste. It is frictionless, but... There are so many things that are able to read the clipboard these days and so many places that just kind of can paste at any point. So it's great to kind of understand how this is being used. So for our listeners who might not have tried this secure sharing tool out yet, how does it work? How might someone, you know, want to use it in their day-to-day life? The features available in all the 1Password apps and also on the web client, you go to an item you want to share and you either choose the share icon in the 1Password 7 apps or in our new 1Password 8 apps, you choose the overflow menu in the top right corner of the item detail view and choose share from there. So then you get a prompt to generate a link to the item. There's a couple options that you can choose to manipulate if you want. You can set an expiration window, which is the first option. So for example, you can be as restrictive as limiting it to a single view of the item for the recipient, or an hour, or into the days, all the way up to 30 days of availability. And you can also choose who the link is available to. By default, the link can be accessed by anyone you send the URL to, but you can choose to restrict it to a list of people. And to do that, you simply enter their email addresses, as many as you like. And then once you click the get link to share button, you get a URL you can then copy to your clipboard and choose to share it with the people you want to view the item. And that can be in, you know, an email, a text message, and so on. So once the recipient opens the link, they'll either be prompted to verify their identity by using their email address, and that sends them a six-digit code that they then enter on the webpage. Thankfully, you only need to do that once, and afterwards it'll remember that you verified that address for up to 30 days. So once you're verified, or if you don't have an email verification requirement on the shared item, you can then see the item. And the item is presented in the same way that our item detail views are built in 1Password. So passwords are obscured, URLs can be opened directly, and the fields can be copied. And if the recipient is a 1Password user already, they can save a copy into their 1Password vault. In terms of examples of how people are using this day-to-day, you know, some great examples are sharing a Wi-Fi password with the in-laws who are coming over to stay with you, a door code for a babysitter. We have customers that are using this feature to send time-sensitive credentials related to tenders and bids, for example, developers exchanging secrets for development work and access to servers. But really, there's all sorts of great circumstances where you might want to share something on a one-off manner. One of my favorite parts of this is something that I think when we talk about the element of copying and pasting and how easy it is to just grab a password and and copy and paste it and throw it into iMessage or, or something like that. The really nice thing about this tool is that it will have all of the item detail parts in there as well. So you've got two factor codes. That's huge alone because no longer is it like, okay, let me share this with you. And then like, it will text me or something. And then I'll forward you that when you want to log in, right? You can get in regardless of whether there's two factor on it or anything like that. And then like notes and other fields, all of this information together in like one link. I have some logins and There are three security questions. I mean, mostly HR tools, if I'm going to be honest. I think in order to get our pay slips, it not only asks you for a password, it asks you for 
three secure words. And of course, I didn't listen to the questions. I just generated three words and put them in the spaces. And there's also two factor. And my accountant needed to get in there the other day and boom, just share the link, sent it to her. And it was all of that information all in one go. So it goes well beyond passwords. That's right. And it's also, to your point, it makes it possible to share things. So, we, you know, we described how people are relying on copy paste because that's what they know and it's familiar and it's easy and frictionless. But what you're describing is even better because, again, one-time passwords and questions and answers and that sort of thing are things that are not as easy to share via clipboard. So now we're actually making it even easier and less friction than copy paste would be yeah i think it's such a good tool and i can't wait to see more features and more usage of it this was a long requested feature what was the experience like designing and developing a tool like this you know really with the history of requests that we had for this yeah i think the uh, the pressure was certainly on and not only was this a long requested feature it's also long attempted there have been several attempts here within the company to build this something that would meet our company standards for security and, and usability we have an engineering group here called the product discovery team that was tasked with designing the architecture and, and working with the product and design teams to build this it was a really long and thorough process with a lot of different stages stakeholders and practitioners involved. We spent a lot of time talking to a variety of different customers, different account sizes, different types of customers from enterprise all the way down to families, and also looking at all the historical data and suggestions and ideas that we've collected over the years. As you mentioned, this was often requested. But yeah, it was very important to be mindful of the scope of the features as well, especially for the first release. There's only so much research and testing that we can do in advance of releasing a feature before we need to get it out into the world and see how people use it at scale. And this provides us the opportunity to really understand what's working and what's not working with the feature and then where we can take it from here. Yeah, I think there's nothing like fresh feedback. I think people dream up when you talk about password sharing tools or anything like that, people dream up what they would like to see. It's not always how the average of all of our customers want something. So the interesting thing in seeing this come to light is that it doesn't quite work how I first thought it would, but I think that's actually better. I have been using this and I have been experimenting with using it where previously I might have posted a Zoom recording and then just posted the password straight after, putting both of those in a shared link and all of this kind of other routes that really I wasn't thinking about when this type of thing was being built. So I think there's an element of people will learn how to use this and give us feedback on how we can extend it to what they originally wanted to do. I think it's one of those things that we're like, we're not going to immediately solve everybody's use case for this. But I think the fact that we're asking for so much feedback is we're kind of merging all that together and, and taking a couple of steps in a direction and, and seeing where we go, honestly. Right. I mean, when we started working on this again, we definitely wanted to start from scratch and remove any of the historical assumptions that were made in prior attempts at this feature. I think taking a fresh look at it, understanding the problem space, understanding the technical constraints for this new approach were very helpful in ensuring that we really thought through all the different paths we could take with this feature. How did we ensure that the tool is going to be secure? Like, what, what are the types of decisions that we made in a security sense for something like this? Well, I don't have to tell you, Matt, but we've got a stellar security track record here at 1Password. So besides nailing the user experience, making it secure enough for our high standards was of utmost importance. So one important aspect to the security model with this feature is that we wanted to let people share items with non-1Password customers. Now, non-1Password users don't have 
a public-private encryption key pair. So getting them to create one to receive an item would make this a lot more difficult to use. And then people just probably wouldn't use it. So we tried several different ways historically, but could never get the experience right. It was always too clunky and you could tell that this wouldn't be an experience people would want to use to share an item once with someone. So now when you share an item, the app on your computer generates a symmetric key for each share. And that's actually included in the sharing URL. So this part of the URL is kept locally in a browser and never sent to the server. So we can never read the shared item. That's why when you share something, we can't send it from our servers. It's up to the user to send the URL to the recipient. So inside the URL, there's a share secret, and we derive a UUID token and key all from that single secret, which keeps the URL shorter as well. We make a copy of an item and temporarily copy it to another server, and it's deleted once the item is expired. It's important to note that when you share an item or a password in this way, you're not sharing the original item itself. Instead, you're sharing a copy, a snapshot of the item as it existed at the moment it was shared. So when you share a password with a contractor, for example, that contractor can only view the item as it existed when you shared it. So then if you change the password after you share the item, that contractor won't see the updated item, only the original copy. Yeah, I really like that. So with this tool out in the wild, have you heard any stories around how it has helped our users already or any fun feedback in terms of anyone changing their password sharing habits? Well, something that's interesting in terms of changing habits is that one aspect of this is that this feature exists alongside our existing guest accounts feature. Now, guest accounts are ideal for sharing information with people in a limited fashion. So if you have a family account or one of our teams or business accounts, you can invite people to join as guest accounts on your plan. Now, they don't get their own private vaults. They only have access to a single vault that you choose. So this is a great feature that a lot of people use. However, for every guest that you add, you have to have a vault for them to join. And if you're only sharing a single item or a few items infrequently, this can become a chore. So item sharing doesn't replace guest accounts because they still have a place. But we talked to a lot of customers that are relieved that they can now use item sharing for these one-off shares and instances where they don't want to set someone up as a guest. I think a lot of users have been pretty excited about the doors this has opened up for them and how they now feel more confident sharing things with other people that they may not have shared with previously. So to wrap up, like what else are you thinking about? Like what's the future of this password sharing tool? Well, first and foremost, we're definitely listening to feedback and we've been getting all sorts of feedback from all types of customers about how they're using this feature, what more they want from it, how it's working for them and how it might not be working for them. I will say that for this first rollout, we've really focused on the very broadest of use cases and worked to ensure that the baseline experience is rock solid. And so now that it's out, we can solicit more information and feedback on how it's working in practice across this larger spectrum of people. We're certainly looking at a variety of additional functionality. You know, at the business and enterprise end, there's a lot of requests around helping ensure that companies stay compliant with any regulations or restrictions that they need to enforce on the teams and families end of it, more options and flexibility for people to choose how and where they share these items and to cover different scenarios. Yeah, nice. So finally, where can people go out to find more about this feature and where can they find it within the apps? Well, as I mentioned, it's rolled out to all our 1Password apps, both the 1Password 7 and our new 1Password 8 apps. If you're using 1Password 7 and you go to an item detail view and you go up in the top corner and click the sharing icon and click share from there, that will give you the prompt and give you the ability to share an item from there. And then if you're using 1Password 8, you can go to the top right corner where there is a three vertical dot overflow menu on an item detail view and you click that and click share there. And that's how you share an item from the desktop apps. On mobile, if you're looking at an item at the bottom, there's a share affordance and if you tap on that, that will get you into the get a link to share flow to allow you to create a shared item link. 
And I encourage everyone to give it a shot because it really does make this much easier and more secure than it's ever been. Nice. Thanks for coming on the show, Phil, and talking to us about the 1Password sharing tool. Thanks for having me, Matt. So just as a reminder, we'd love to get your feedback and hear your thoughts on the show. There's a link in the show notes to our listener survey. It should take two minutes or less. Um, All questions are optional and you have the option to add your email address at the end to be entered into our giveaway. Winners of the giveaway will be picked at random and will win one year free of 1Password and some 1Password swag. All feedback is for our own purposes in order to improve the podcast. So the giveaway does close on the 22nd of November. Nice. Yeah, we've got we've gotten some good responses. Yeah, we've had about 75 responses so far, which is pretty great. Because if there's one thing I hate in life, it's filling out forms. So I appreciate everyone who has taken the time to give us some feedback and I'm taking it all on board. There have been a few people who have expressed that they're not a fan of the new intro, so I'll be removing those going forward. And lots of people are saying they want more security news. So I'm adding another story to Watchtower Weekly. And lots of people would like more insights into 1Password and tips and advice too. So that's something we're working on bringing you in the new year. Nice. A lot of people like to see you fail, Rue. I know. Um, So you you, I bet you that know. they loved my f***ing longboard story. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. All right. Let's play Ridiculous Requirements. So welcome to Ridiculous Requirements, the game where we work together to come up with passwords, not advised, that fit the honestly terrible requirements. And this time, I have not put this together. You have so not. So I'm kind of terrified. Okay. So this week's requirements are, it must contain a word commonly used to describe a cake. It must contain a lack of neatness or order. It must contain the noise a foot makes in mud. And all three words must generate feelings of disgust. Mm. So we've got... Right, first one, moist. Moist, yeah, exactly. Uh, Squelch for the mud. Squelch, exactly right. That's where I was going. Uh, A lack of neatness or order. What's a lack of neatness or order that... Generates a feeling of disgust. So there's like mess. There's disarray. Um, gosh, I don't know. Hmm. Moist squelch. <laughs> those two are obvious. Immediately, it comes out as like yes. that's a that's yes. a nasty word. You have got those two correct. Yeah, I can confirm. It's not like muss, is it? Or do you need a clue? Yes, a clue would be nice. So you would use this word to describe maybe a messy burger, like how you would eat a burger <laughs> dirty <laughs> no a dirty burger uh, or like if you've done a terrible paint job what is it slapdash sloppy oh it is sloppy oh. sloppy <laughs> there you go uh, so what's the three word password moist sloppy squelch oh <laughs> anna it's really good when you put it all together <laughs> oh i love it did it generate feelings of disgust yes yes sure did nice good job I like that. I like that a lot. <laughs> what a way to end an episode. <laughs> oh. oh, and on that quite disgusting auditory note, <laughs> love you both. Love you both. We'll catch you later. Love you both. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.